Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be hearing from Winston Hopman. Winston has been a member of Lake Highlands Baptist Church since 2015 and has served as associate pastor since October 2022. Prior to that, he served as chief of staff at Criswell College in Dallas. His passion is to minister the Word of God through preaching, teaching, and personal discipleship. In addition to his general pastoral responsibilities, he oversees a small group and children's ministries and the discipleship of new believers. He's currently working on a doctoral dissertation in the field of early Christian studies and plans to graduate in May 2024. Without further ado, Winston Hotman. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. And I just want to do something very simple in the short time that we have together. And that is ask and try to provide something of a, at least a start of an answer, the beginning of an answer to two questions. One, what is joy? And two, how do we get it? Because when you realize and learn what joy is, it's inherently desirable. And so to avoid leave you hanging, I want to talk about how we can get it based on Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let me very quickly read this, and we'll jump right in. I should also say thank you for this opportunity. I have it in my notes to do that, uh, but I think I'm just so excited and giddy to be here that, that I forgot. I mean, um, I, I meant to say this as well. Uh, there's an old saying that says, don't get to know your heroes. Um, Dr. Creamer must be one of those rare exceptions uh, because the longer that I get to know him, the more that I respect him. Um, despite whatever faults I might have come across. Uh, I, I don't know the same could be said for Daisy, but <laughs> for Dr. Creamer at least, um, I, I have the utmost respect for him and uh, the people that he mentioned and, and many of you here. Uh, I'm looking at professors that I've either taken classes from or gotten to know. Uh, some of you as students, are, our times here overlapped and, and, and you mean something to me as well. And, and Luis, of course, is Luis even here? I think he left. Okay, I, I told him, I said he was going to jet for lunch early or something, but he's, he's not here. But I, I, I appreciations to him for the invitation. All right, so Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is what Paul says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with, and here's the key word, joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what is joy? Uh, I polled our staff at church uh, a few weeks ago to ask them, and the first answer that I got was joy is happiness. Joy is happiness. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you know that it's common for us to define joy by actually distinguishing it from happiness. And so very quickly after that initial answer, some of the other staff members began to draw a distinction between the two things. And uh, one of the first things that was said was that uh, the difference is happiness is external, whereas joy is internal. Um, or another way in which people made the distinction was by talking about circumstances. Happiness is something that depends on your circumstances. How well your life is going, how, how well it matches up to what you hoped it would be, whereas joy is something that is independent of those circumstances. I, as I thought about those answers and I thought about not only this section in Paul's letter to the Philippians, but about scripture as a whole, I came to the conclusion that to say that joy is not happiness probably isn't true because whenever you look at the theme of joy, when you look at images of joy throughout scripture, they look a lot like what we usually mean when we say happy. But at the same time, it seems to me like joy is a special kind of happiness, a special type of happiness. And it has to do with the distinction that, that our staff members started to make and, and probably that you have made as well as you've thought about that question, what is joy? I wanna propose a definition, uh, one for the purposes of this lesson to you for joy. Joy is a happiness that surprises you or at least has the capacity to surprise you. There's ordinary happiness and then there's a special kind of happiness we call joy which is a happiness that surprises you, that shows up at times when you least expect it and in places where you wouldn't expect it to find you. So when my Chick-fil-A app notifies me that I've achieved signature status and it's only January, which means that no matter how much chicken I pay for, for the rest of the year, I'm going to get lots and lots of what they call rewards, which is free chicken, free waffle fries, free seasonal drinks like the peach milkshakes. I'm happy. But that's a predictable kind of happiness, right? Or any, any cowboy fans here? Anybody? No? Everybody like sheepishly like, uh? Uh, if you're a Cowboys fan and the Cowboys finally make the playoff, that feeling that bubbles up inside of you, that, that's happiness, but it's a predictable kind of happiness. Anybody here not a Cowboys fan? Anybody here support a different team? All right, so that feeling that you get whenever you find out that your team is going to play the Cowboys in the first round of the playoffs, that's also happiness, but it's a predictable kind of happiness. Joy is different. Joy happens unpredictably. It, it, it happens in places and at times of our lives where it's not, where happiness should not be, where happiness would not be expected. Paul should not be happy 
where he's at. He's writing most likely from Rome under house arrest. His whole world had been turned upside down years earlier, all for the sake of his mission given to him by Christ to preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles throughout the the world at the time. And now he finds himself imprisoned, unable to to globe trek the Eastern Mediterranean like he had been doing, finding himself bound in a place, limited only to sending out letters. And, And many of these letters are prompted by the fact that people are coming behind Paul, going to the places where he's already ministered and planted seeds and trying to uproot the work that he's done, trying to malign Paul's name and reputation. He'll say later on in this first chapter about those who are preaching the gospel in such a way as to also denigrate Paul's own character and ministry. And he's bound in his home. He can't go anywhere. He can't make his way back to them to vindicate himself. He's having to do that from a distance with letters. It seems like the the whole mission of his life has been constricted now and, and, and made impossible. And yet in this circumstance, Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I do so with joy with this special kind of happiness. Uh, Several years ago, I found myself at the bedside table of a man in the last stages of a long fight uh, with multiple sclerosis. Uh, This man had been a star quarterback for a college team of a prominent university here in the state of Texas. He He was still tall and good-looking, this man was a man who at one time in his life had it all. He had, he had left college, entered into a career as a, as a, as a high-level salesperson, making lots of money, a roaring success, and then found himself literally flattened to the ground one day in the middle of a sales, sales pitch and was later diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. By the time that I got to meet him, by the time our paths had crossed, this man was confined to his bed he needed help doing everything. A man, a man who could throw a quarterback like only few of us, you know, only we, we could only dream of doing, now had to be spoon-fed by his family members, had to be helped to go to the restroom. We, we talked a lot of, about a lot of things in that short visit that I had. We talked about his history, my history, talked about theology, uh, talked about sports, uh, talked about whether I could date his daughter, which was the reason I was there in the first place. Uh, but more than anything, we talked about Jesus. And I wish that I could say that was at my prompting, but it was all his. And, and every, any conversation that we had, he would bring it back to the one passion that he had in his life, which was Christ. Because in the process of suffering that disease, he had encountered Christ. And the thing that I walked away with more than anything else uh, more than the fear, because you know, this, I, I was in my early 20s at this time. I had never seen something like this up close. I had never considered how quickly my own quality of life could be decimated. But the thing that I walked away with more than anything th- than the fear and the, dis- and, and the sense of despair that were there was a sense of this man's joy, the happiness that existed in circumstances where we would least expect it. That's the kind of happiness that Paul has. That's what joy is. It's, it's a happiness that surprises you because it shows up where it's not supposed to when it's not supposed to, like an unwelcome yet welcome guest. So if this is joy, and if you know ahead of time, as, as you should, that you are going to find yourself uh, at times in your life 
full of suffering, full of hardship, full of challenges. How do we get this kind of joy? Let's look very quickly at what Paul has to say in the, in the next few verses. And uh, man, I'm pacing myself well. I'm at 10 minutes and I already did half my sermon. So this is, uh, this is promising for you. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance, in verse three, always in prayer, every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And then he's going to give us the basis, the reason for this joy. He says this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the immediate cause, immediate reason for his joy is the partnership of the Philippians in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now we need to camp out just for a second on this word partnership because I think it's the key to understanding everything that Paul is going to say here as well as in the rest of the letter and really in many ways Paul's whole theology. This word partnership, it's a word that you're probably familiar with at this point in time, especially if you've been here at Criswell for a few years. It's the word koinonia, the word koinonia. And if you're using an English translation, Uh, you're probably looking at the word partnership or the word fellowship. That's mostly how it's translated. I think both of those words are great. Uh, I'm not a Greek expert, so I hesitate to say that, you know, um, that, that there's some deficiency in it. But I do think that when we see that word it can sometimes carry a a wrong connotation. When we look at a word like partnership in our very pragmatic, uh, sort of pick yourself up by your bootstraps culture, I think we can think of it in terms of a group project. Like what Paul is excited about is that he was given this work to do and now he knows in his imprisonment that there's people out there that are still carrying it on despite the fact that he's here in his house and so he's got other people helping him out, right? Like if you're doing a group project in, uh, in one of your, as one of your assignments and, and you know now that, it's, that this grade isn't just falling on your shoulders alone but it's now shared by you and your uh, fellow students who are sharing that group project together. That's, that's a, a very reductionistic understanding of the word koinonia. Fellowship also has some issues as well because of the way that we often think about that word in superficial ways. What I would argue, my, my preferred words for this uh, Greek word koinonia are the words communion or participation. Communion or participation. Why is that important? Because as we can see a little bit here, but definitely as Paul progresses in this prayer and in his writings elsewhere, for Paul, the communion that Christians enter into as believers is not merely a sharing in a task, a sharing in a project, the, the, the project of sharing the good news, but through the gospel, it is this. It's a sharing in Christ himself, a co-sharing, a participation in Christ. This is a community that has been brought together and the, the common good that defines them, the thing that they share together is Christ. That's very important for us to see because in verse six, Paul is going to say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. If we think of our koinonia, our communion, our partnership is something that we do for Christ, verse six isn't gonna make a lot of sense because what Paul is saying here is that this fellowship, this koinonia, this communion is something that God has begun. It is a work of God. It is a work that is happening 
to you, in you, and through you, not something that you are primarily doing for him. And notice how he defines this work. In you, he is confident that the one who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we don't have a lot of time here. This is part of where I have to, have to excise some stuff from my fuller version of this sermon. But what Paul is saying here is this, that the, the, the Christ, Jesus who was revealed in a way in secret, in, in, in um, a very uh, under-the-rug kind of a way, a very obscure way in his first coming. The day of Jesus Christ is the day that is coming in which Christ is going to be revealed to all of creation in the fullness of his glory. And the reason why that is important for the Philippians is that the work that has begun in them, that God has initiated in them, is the work of conforming them into the image of Christ. As Christ will be revealed as the image of God, those who are in him will be revealed as those who have been recreated in the image of God, fully human, as they were always intended to be. There's a lot more that could be said there, but the point that I want us to see is that ministry, your ministry, the ministry of the church is not about us doing something for God. Uh, I was coming back from a funeral yesterday from the Houston area and, and I saw a billboard as I came and it said, it's, it had an image of Christ on the cross and it says, live for me, I died for you. And while I think there's some truth obviously in that, what it can play into is this mindset that says, well, God has done something for us and now it's time for us to pay him back, to give him what he has earned for, by, through his love for us. That is not what the church is. The church does not exist for Christ. The church exists in Christ and through Christ. Christ, this is what I want you to see, is God's good work in the world. And as we enter into communion, participation in him, we become that good work. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. And so Christ is the center of all of this. This is the koinonia, the, the, the common fellowship that excites Paul, that leads to happiness, this unexpected happiness, even in these circumstances. But notice there's something deeper. There's something more here as well. Notice what he says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. To feel how? Well, confident that, that this work that excites him is going to come to completion. Uh, joy at the work of God in, their, in, in this fellowship. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. Now, that sounds very hallmarky to me. That sounds like something you'd put on a, on a greeting card and, and send to somebody. But Paul is real here. Paul is not speaking just merely metaphorically. He's not speaking sentimentally. When he says, I hold you in my heart, what he's indicating to us is that in sharing in Christ, as, as, as one who has entered into communion with Christ along with the Philippians, Paul and the Philippians now have a share in one another. They now have a participation with one another that has been opened up and, and made available through them in Christ. Notice, notice he says this, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And this word for partakers is directly related to the word koinonia, with me of grace. The Philippians, because of their relationship to Christ, can now claim Paul's sufferings, which he regards as a manifestation of God's grace in his life as their own sufferings. 
So not only is what is Christ is ours, but what is yours is mine, and what is mine is yours in Christ. And then notice what he says. This is both in the imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. But then here's the key verse for answering the question, how do we get joy? For God is my witness, verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here, and it's a truly radical thing to hear from the pen of a man like Saul become Paul. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, that, that word affection there, I mentioned it to the church. Uh, Dr. Moore knows this word. It's a, it's a fun word. It's, it's a word uh, splunknon. It's a word that refers to, to a person's guts, to their innermost being. What he's saying is, is not I have, I, I have come to share, I have come to, to develop my own affections for you, a, a love for you in my most inward parts, but I have come to share in the affections, the splunknon, the, the innermost love of Christ for you as fellow participants in him. Now this is absolutely insane because just a few years ago, Paul had been gallivanting around the country trying to imprison and kill these very people. He, he, under, under false impressions of what God wanted for his life, he had been traveling around, rounding up Christians, trying to eradicate the church until one day he realized it was about as, as, as useful as putting out a forest fire with your boot hill. And in this grand moment, he's confronted on the road to Damascus and literally knocked down to the ground by the love of Christ, the very one who unbeknownst to him, he was persecuting, he was condemning, he was imprisoning, he was killing and murdering. This one confronts him. And when Paul encounters that love, his life is turned upside down. And now this very man says, I no longer share the hatred of my people for you, but I share the affections, the innermost love of Christ on behalf of you all. The very people he sought to kill, the very people he hated, he has now learned to love. Before Paul was ever surprised by joy, he was surprised by love. A love that came to him at a time when most of us would look at someone like Saul and say, that's not where the love of Christ should be extended. That's not where the love of God should be found. But that's exactly where the love of Christ appeared. A place where we would least expect it. A love for his arch enemy, Paul. And that love so transformed Paul, so took hold of him, that now he shares in it in such a way that Christ's own love has become his love for the very people that he once hated. Which is why then he prays in verse nine that the Philippians would come to share in this same love. It is my prayer that your love, which is Christ's love, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you, may approve what is excellent. Not like Paul, who looked at the church and saw it as the enemy, 
but now approving, now being able to discern the work of God may, may come to share in this same love. This was Christ's own prayer. Paul, Paul has been so captured and captivated by Christ that now he prays like Christ prays. In John chapter 15, verses eight, eight through 11, this is what Jesus says, and it's very interesting. This, these few verses in, in John 15 are, are almost an exact parallel of Philippians 1 through 11, but in reverse. Notice what it says in verse eight of John 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then notice this. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It is by becoming a participant in Christ's love that Paul has become a participant in Christ's joy. And it's why Paul can find himself in the situation that he, that he is in and yet find happiness because of the one who for the shame, for the one who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, endured the suffering of the cross. This, this is my word for you, uh, as you as you go your way today. There is no, when it comes to joy, this special kind of happiness, there is no technique for you. There's lots of ways to pursue ordinary happiness. And, and please don't get anything from this message discouraging you from ordinary happiness. There's lots of ways to pursue that. Um, one of it might be picking a different football team. But... <laughs> Ordinary happiness is a wonderful thing given in God's grace. It's not, not as an ultimate end for your life, but, but where you can find it, it's a wonderful thing. But this joy, this kind of special joy with the capacity to surprise you is something that can only be found by not looking for it, but rather by looking for something else. Uh, your studies at Criswell um, are a time where you are accumulating a lot of information that you have never known before. You're accumulating a lot of facts. You're learning a lot of new things. You're developing new skills. But ultimately, and this is what I love about this college, uh, your professors and the leadership of this school know that the ultimate aim of your education is the cultivation of the affections of Christ in you such that you can go out and love the people and love the things that God loves, not the things that you have learned to love before you came to Christ. So as you progress as a student, this is my encouragement to you, give yourself over to the love of Christ. Let it surprise you, let it, let it shock you who it is that Christ is calling you to love out there, people who you regarded as enemies, enemies of God like Saul, let Christ's love in and through you reshape your affections for those people. Go looking for that love, abide in it. The love that has surprised you, shocked you, if you will abide in that love, here's, here's what will happen. One day, in the midst of your suffering, and I'm telling you, the, the, the life of loving your enemies is a life that will cost you. It'll cost you friends because there will be friends who look at you and say you shouldn't act, treat other people that way. They're the enemy. But if, and so if you love other people that, that other people find shocking to love, 
They're going to be scandalized. You're going to lose friends. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your possessions, potentially. It's going to cost you, ultimately, your own life as you take up this cross, shaped by the affections of Christ. But as you do that, here's the promise that God gives to you. At a moment of suffering, in a moment of darkness, when you least expect it, that's where joy will find you. It will find you because it is Christ's joy. The very one who gives his love to you has also made it so that you can participate in his joy by participating in his love. So as you go out as ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, professionals, let the love of Christ surprise you, shock you, and shape you. Abide in that love, and then the joy of God will do the same. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for this brief time that you've given me here with these good people, and I have no other prayer for them but the prayer of Paul, and so I pray, Lord, that their love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment, that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, radiant with his love and his joy, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen, y'all join me in thanking Winston Hotman. Thank you, Winston, if you'll take a seat for a minute. I have a few questions for you. Uh-oh. Uh, so uh, this is what I, the, the first question I have for you is this. We, you know, we have a, a requirement uh, for a staff, for faculty, uh, that is, and for students. I mean, they have to be involved in a church. Everybody's got everybody's to go to church, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're so closely related to that. And this is not a church. This doesn't satisfy it. So we require them to go to church. But the requirement is completely different from the reason it's a requirement, which is, uh, the importance of it, you know, itself. Yeah. The thing that's uh, always stood out to me about you, it's true about Bill, true about Daisy also, by the way, but the thing that's really stood out about you is you've gotten an academic background, you have your bachelor's degree, you have an MDiv, you're finishing your PhD, and you're shining in your PhD, you have opportunities to do anything. You could have continued to work full-time at this college for as long as you wanted. You're, yeah. you're incredibly valuable in this world. And yet you threw away your life to go back to local church ministry. Yeah. So I'm just kidding. Uh, but you know, you get the idea. Yeah. You, left, you left that and, you, and it wasn't, uh, well, I feel like I have an obligation to go work at a church. Uh, you, from the beginning, had this magnetic pull that was just dragging you to be uh, in church ministry. And, yeah. in, and whether you were paid or not, just to be in a local church, that yeah. had to be your focus. Why? What is that, what makes that so attractive to you? What compels you in that direction? Don't give yeah. me some spiritual mumbo jumbo. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you can say whatever you want, yeah. but I'm serious. Uh, what, what is the, what is, what, what's the, the thing that just compels you to yeah. be in that setting? Uh, I, you know, I think, uh, first of all, I came here expecting to train to be a pastor. And so that was on my radar initially, and then I sort of shifted to thinking, well, maybe uh, academics would be my long-term um, goal. And uh, that, you know, I, I took on the, the last role that I had here at, at the college, I took that on. It was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, the people that I worked with, I mean, to the college as a whole, and then the friends that I worked with in the, that particular office, Kendall over there as well. I mean, just wonderful people. You don't work, ask to work with better people. And so it, it, was, it was weird when I began to develop this sense that that, uh, that pull, that, that drawback to the church. Um, and I think that uh, among the things that, that I find compelling 
um, about the church is that um, the way I tell people now is, so we at our church, and, and not that all churches need to do this or anything, but our church celebrates uh, communion, uh, Lord's Supper, every week. And uh, that's become the highlight. It, it wasn't before, but as I've, as I've progressed in pastoring, it's, it's, it's become the highlight uh, of my week because it, it's really, it, to me, the starting point of the Christian life. We, in that, you know, and there's different views on what this means, but um, when we celebrate communion, we receive the signs of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And there's an old adage that says, uh, you are what you eat. You are what you eat, which means that the Lord's Supper, the receiving of Christ's broken body and, and, and blood is not a, thanks Jesus that you did this for us so we don't have to do anything, but you are taking into yourself what you are to become. You, the church is the broken body of Christ in the world. We're called to participate in, in, in that sacrifice. Um, now, that, that life of sacrifice can be played out as the president of a college. It can be played out as, as a, a, a psychologist, a counselor. Um, I think for me, though, uh, it was a combination of uh, both interests and desires and also ways in which um, perhaps God has uh, uh, given me some skills and abilities. My, that, that whole self-doubting part makes me hesitant to speak of such things, but um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, so I don't, I, I just, I, I love the church. I, I, as I've grown in my understanding of what the church is as that, uh, it's made me really passionate about seeing the extension of Christ's work uh, especially in the ways in which we as believers can love people uh, that we're not supposed to love according to the world. So. Amen. I've also, uh, and if anybody has a question, raise your hand and Diosling or uh, Mariah will get a microphone to you as you're thinking about it. Uh, and, but go ahead and raise your hand while I'm asking this question. I want to follow up on that one with just one, and maybe you can answer this very briefly. But if you took all of that and you added it to this idea, we have students who uh, are faithful, uh, as students and they're doing their work here and they're growing and they go to a church, but honestly in their heart, that's just like, eh, it's just not that important yeah. to me. I'm just doing it because I have to do it right now. How would you encourage them to gain some yeah. sense of love for that? Or yeah, I, I, you know, when we, when, I, when we use language like that of, you know, sacrificing ourselves, participating in Christ's sacrifice, I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that this has to take some sort of extraordinary form, like, and, and one of the, I think the most haunting chapter in all of the Bible is, uh, uh, is 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter. I'm getting that reference, yeah, right? Uh, because Paul says there, though I, though I, the stuff that he lists that he could do that isn't really an indication of that he loves, like it's not definitive proof. Like he said, I could give my body to be burned. You know, I could sing with the tongues of angels and, and all of that and yet not have love. And then when he gives the list of things that, that characterize love, they're all things like patience, you know, uh, making space for others to exercise their gifts. It, it looks very ordinary. And so what I would encourage you to do is if you find church boring and just something that you're going through the most, pray, pray desperately and ask God to give you the faith to see the significance of what hap what's happening there. Because what it, in, in the same way that Christ comes in a very sort of obscure way, um, I, I think that the church manifests the glory of Christ in ways oftentimes that are ve seem very ordinary, very mundane. 
Uh, so when you get together at your church and you are praising God together, praying together, sitting under the word, but remember, this, Christ is the primary actor and agent in all of that. This is how he is fulfilling his mission in the world in and, and through you. And so I would, just, I would just recommend praying and asking God to help you to not see with just your physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith what God is doing in those very mundane, ordinary, even boring experiences of church. So. Okay, one more question for me, and then if anybody's got one. I don't know, if did we get one already? Oh, I'll, I'll let you go first. Go ahead. Good, af- good afternoon, Pastor. Uh, I just want to ask you, what has your calling cost you? Not as much as a lot of people. Um, I would say, in many ways, who God has called me to forgive, and so... Um, I'm thinking of my calling in that sense more broadly than just a calling to preach or teach. Um, it's, uh, it's cost some relationships uh, as well, and I won't go into too much detail on that. Um, I, I reference the fact that it, when you follow Christ where he's leading you, um, it may mean breaking, severing some of those relationships. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have anything more profound to say than that. So. It's a really good question. I, I, I will say this. I think I could answer that question for him better than he could if I didn't feel like it would violate, you know, his privacy. You know, it's his own life. Um, but it is true. Sometimes you don't. And I, I will say, I think this is true of Winston. I don't think he knows how much would have been on the other path that... Uh, instead of having taken this path to follow Christ. Um, and it is apparent to all of us, you know, what those things could have been, I think. So uh, anyway, I'll just pat you on the back with that one. Uh, anybody else have a question, feel free to wave your hand and get a mic from Diosling or Mariah back towards the back. On your way back there, I want to uh, see if you can answer this one quickly so we can, so we can get to his uh, question too, Sam's question. Um, you're doing uh, a lot of early Christian history in your yeah. PhD studies. What's one thing from the very early church period that you wish contemporary Christians understood better? Yeah, I, I think uh, more than anything, it's, it's an understanding of what it means for Christ to be fully human and fully God. Uh, and uh, I, I think our understanding, of the, the understanding of koinonia, of the, of the nature of the fellowship that we have as a church, everything hinges on that. The fact that Christ in becoming human, in dying on the cross and rising again, uh, gives us access now into the very life of God that he has enjoyed with the Father from eternity. I didn't bring this out because of lack of time, but I, I think what's going on in John 15 and, and obviously then in Philippians 1 is that the joy, the love that we experience in and through Christ is the love and joy that has eternally been part of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, God himself is love and joy, and it's through his suffering that Christ opens up a means for us to participate in that. That doctrine of the incarnation has been central to the church, and unfortunately, in some segments of the church in contemporary times, that, that has been lost sight of. And we often speak about the cross and we speak about salvation without that being front and center. Thank you. Yes, sir. 
Yes, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I was going to ask, besides Holy Scripture, what's something you've read recently that's had a really big impact on you, and what was it? Oh, gosh. I always hate that question because it sounds like I haven't been reading anything because it always stumps me. And, uh, and let me just thank you for asking it because he doesn't like it. This yeah. is perfect. Yeah, I, I've, read, I've, I've, I've read a number of things lately. I, I'll say this. It's actually a work of literature. Uh, so uh, Yoon Fosse, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, recently won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he has a little book that he published last year called A Shining. Um, and much of the themes that I just talked about uh, are, are in that book. And it, it's, it's a reflection on how it's a reflection on the basic principle of the gospel of, of life and death, the, the irony of the cross, that in darkness, in suffering, uh, we meet God. That's where he's found. And so uh, I'd recommend that book to anybody. You can read it in like a, an a hour and a half. It's very short, but A Shining by Yun Fosse. Thank you very much. All right, any other last, last opportunity? Anybody else? Are we good? Okay, there's one hand over here. Somebody, I'm having somebody point me over here. That's why I was asking. So, nope, I'm not seeing anybody. Okay, we are good. Uh, look. Everybody's like, he's terrible at answering Thanks questions. Thanks so much for being here. And, and uh, I'm, I really am. Y'all can tell. I mean, I love Winston to death. He's a great close friend. So, y'all uh, join me one more time in giving him thanks. And uh, God bless you for doing that. And you are dismissed. Have a great day. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.